The Offsite Podcast is presented by Offsite Consulting, offering financial consulting programs for small business owners and nonprofit leaders. Find Offsite on the web at auphsite.com. What can a fortune cookie teach us about managing risk? It's episode six of the Offsite Podcast. I'm Joe Taylor Jr. with Darnell Suleiman. Hey, Joe. What's Hello. up? Hello. A mysterious question for the start of the show today, and it's just one of the questions we're going to cover as we explore one of the least sexy aspects of running a startup or a small business, risk and compliance. Mm-hmm. So before we immediately put everybody to sleep with a discussion about compliance, okay, <laughs> let's put it into perspective. Writer named Hillary Sargent on Boston.com back in December broke the story of Sichuan Garden. It's a family-owned Chinese restaurant in Brookline Village, right outside of Boston. Ben Edelman, Harvard Business School professor, and I don't want you to think I'm hating on Harvard Business School here, <laughs> but Professor Edelman orders dinner from there one night and realized that on a $51 check, he got charged $54. and change. You basically got overcharged by $4. (laughs) Now, it turns out the restaurant had updated their menu. They raised the price of each item by a dollar. Four items, four dollars. Now, it also turns out it's illegal for companies in Massachusetts, as it is in many parts of the country, to charge a different price for goods and services than what's posted on their website. Angie, I didn't know that. Okay. okay. Now, most of us <laughs> would have let the $4 go. Not the Harvard guy. No. <laughs> he actually teaches negotiations. Okay. Okay. Wow. So the so for folks, there's a link in the show notes at offsite.com slash podcast, and you can see the article. This thing erupted on Twitter with folks that were basically in, enraged because the way that the professor went about it was to submit this incredibly passive-aggressive email to the restaurant owner explaining how what had happened was outrageous and illegal and and all these things that were going to happen to this restaurant owner under Massachusetts law (laughs) because, A— it's, it's illegal to mm-hmm. post a price on the website, charge something different. B, under, um, under the law that Professor Edelman cited, if you uh, are causing damage in that way, the consumer is entitled to treble damages, tr- three times the difference. $12. So the initial ask was, <laughs> refund me $12. And this poor guy, <laughs> this poor guy that runs the restaurant is like, I'll just give you $4. Just leave me alone. And so then it it turned into this whole thing of like, I'm going to post this all over the place and I'm going to report you to the authorities and do you have legal counsel? And and it just went completely off Ah, the rails, right? Yeah. So I bring this up because I find that it's a really good example of the kind of thing that business owners don't expect, which is, Whatever you do, mm-hmm. there's somebody out there that will probably find some fault with you at some point. Yes. And so when we talk about compliance, <laughs> okay, <laughs> compliance is about making sure that you are covered and protected 
when things go off the rails like yeah. that. So in your experience, when we talk about compliance, what are the kinds of things that organization leaders, business owners have to watch out for? What usually falls under the radar for them? <laughs> you know, because as you said that my brain thought about the Pension Protection Act, which is a law that came into effect in 2007 and reached new reporting requirements for 990s. And 270,000 nonprofits lost in 2010, because it came into effect 2007, 20, 20, in 2010, 270,000 lost their 990s. So, no, I mean, their, um, their uh, nonprofit status. So, the form, you're talking about the Form 990. Yes. Tell us what that is. So, what the it Form means. 990 is, uh, thanks, Joe. Your Form 990 is, your, is if you have a nonprofit, 501c3 or any others, you have to report your, um, your financials on this form, your balance sheet, your income statements, functional uh, expenses, and kind of tell the story of what you do. You submit it to the Fed. It's, 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 your t- it's the 1040 for the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. This is called the 990. And the, I don't know. I don't know who brought the bill to Congress or whatever to get voted on. But, you know, in 2007, they changed the rules. Which was interesting because as you're saying this, I said 270,000 people miss this highlight. Their CPAs didn't bring it to their attention. They're, they're the lawyers who work for it, 270, that's a lot. And mind you, even if we say, you know, some of these were probably not active anyway. Let's just say 100,000 weren't. And no, and no, actually, some of these was like United Way, Salvation Army, some of these major nonprofits that do great work for the community, but they lost theirs too. So when we think about that, in my line of work, I, uh, as as a consultant in accounting and uh, and business development, what I constantly see are clients who do not just adhere to the fundamental reporting requirements: state reporting, tax reporting, local uh, federal tax reporting. There, uh, so in in a, in a charter school world, we have. Uh, what is Department of Education final expenditure reports? They miss these things, and and oftentimes it's because they do not have qualified people to run it. Is that because they're trying to take on too much themselves and they're not educated? Is it where where does the ignorance come from? Is it deliberate? Is it unintentional? Where where do you think where do you come down on that? <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly. So you see my smile. Um, <laughs> I mean, every every case certainly is, is unique. Unique. It, I, I would say fifty percent ignorance, fifty percent ego, founder syndrome. Okay. And and when I say uh, I will attribute the founder syndrome to I will, I could do it myself. You, you know, not the ignorance side. Yeah. You know. And I, and so that's the piece where those go hand in hand because the founder experiencing that is doing a lot of things themselves, mm-hmm. feels like they know their business or their better. organization better than anybody. Yeah. And, and I think it comes back to something we said in the last episode, which is that line you cross between being frugal and being a cheapskate, which <laughs> is, you know, I don't... I can get all this stuff off the yeah. website. I don't need to yeah. pay somebody to tell That's me right. what to do. And then you realize that there's a piece of the law that you didn't know didn't or know. forgot to read yeah. or, you know, you because it's, not, it's not in your scope you of work. That thing. It's yeah. not in your scope of, of work. And that's what you see. And so you saw in, in that moment 
more than a quarter million organizations lose their status, which mm-hmm. they're then and I think means, it went to about 350 at total, yeah. give or take. Yeah. And, and that means they lose the mm-hmm. ability to solicit funds. Yes. Right. So what, how did that get rectified? Did, did any of those recover? Did they have to refile? Uh, the, how you can get reinstated again was within 12 months, but it, I think it was 2011. Uh, if, if, so I think, I think the official, uh, the initial revocation went in, in June of 2010, if I'm correct, memory serves me right. You, they gave you one year to have all your 990s for three years. So what happens if you miss three years consecutive, they just totally uh, said, no, we're revoking you. So you had to submit 990s for three years. So we'll say uh, 07, 08, 09. And they may, they, it's not an automatic reinstatement. They may say, we want you to still to do the initial application, which is the 1023, to be recognized. So you may have to go back and have your lawyer and your program people sit and redraft this whole 1023, you know, documentation of what do we do? And then they still, it's, 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 it's that decision rests with the Internal Revenue Service, we're going to still recognize you. And I have people, I have clients right now still waiting. Mm, yeah. From 2009. I have clients waiting for maybe 18 months. Now. Okay. Yeah. Now- that kind of goes hand in hand with some of the controversy that's been in the press the last year or two. Mm-hmm. The idea that auditors at the IRS were deliberately targeting nonprofit organizations. There, on one side of the argument, you have folks saying, "Well, that's illegal. It's target. It's it's really deliberate." targeting of primarily religious affiliated mm-hmm. or politically affiliated yeah. nonprofits. Yeah, we it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, on the other side, if you think about it as kind of a growth hack, if you're an auditor at the IRS, one of the things that you're going to look for are places where you see some of the most frequent compliance mistakes, Yeah, which those things overlap. I mean, it may be politically expedient, Driven. Right. Yeah. Let's say mm-hmm. let's say it's yeah. politically it's, driven, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Oh, let's shut down these, yeah. you know, I I think I'm doing a good thing if I'm an auditor that's thinking this way by hassling folks that are after my boss's boss's boss, yeah. right? So whether it was ordered, whether it was not ordered, yeah. like somebody went down this path, yeah. right? Um, unfortunately, apparently the IT system there is worse than anybody's nightmare and all those emails got deleted, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but the idea here is that the line of thinking was that it seemed like these were pretty low-hanging fruit for auditors, right? So is so what are things, let's say someone's starting either a nonprofit organization or a startup business, what are some of the common things that a founder has to make sure they're covering to make sure they're not at risk for a compliance audit? If you're... So you start a nonprofit and you think of compliance, think of uh, the people. First, my brain said, you know, you, you can't do you can't file federal tax returns if you don't have no money. So, you know, the people who award you the money, they have reporting requirements. Understand them. Meet with your program people. And some of it is qualitative. Some of it is quantitative, you know, and really vet that out. You know, and say, hey, you know, uh, have a calendar. What's the deadlines? And hire the professionals. Uh, if you cannot hire the professionals, 
oftentimes the person who is or the organization or the government agency that's warding you the money, they have workshops. Attend the workshops. They're going to tell you on the 15th of February, we're looking for this report with this data. On the 12th of July, we're looking for this, you know, uh, this report, this data, and here's the outline how we would like it to look. Same thing applies when it comes to reporting. You know, hire the people who understand, you know, whether they're direct hires or professional service people as my as myself, who understand what the uh, authorities are looking for. And, and, and w- one of the things, tools I, I use is a calendar. Put it on the calendar. And uh, I normally have, if, if reports do, uh, I'll have it out maybe by two weeks. And flashes, you know. Now, if any event that I have seen is, if your 990s are due in November and your calendar, you know, on November the 15th, and this is October the 31st, and you have a flash alert, but your books aren't done right, it doesn't matter now. The ship is sailed. <laughs> Unless you're going to come up with $50,000, and that's realistically mm-hmm. what it would take, or you, I'll say a bare minimum $35,000. Yeah, you know. And yeah. that's just to put bodies on it to do everything that's correct. in the space of in, a in week. A, in the space of a week or yeah. two. That's just it. because it's a yeah, labor-intensive. It's, it's a labor-intensive. Because really what the 990 is tracking is all of the receipts and disbursements over that is a correct. year. And it's, and, and it's a summary. Yeah. And it's a summary of, of, of how, you know, at, at, it's a snapshot with the functional expense page of if, if, if I'm a, um, a person who desires to give money, I want to see, you know, how much of this million dollars I gave you was really for management. You know, we had this conversation earlier, mm-hmm. or how much was it for fundraising and program? Because as you know, we're trying to keep the administrative costs under 15%. You know, 20% is really high, but that 11 to 15% is industry standard. And it's interesting because even with, I've, I've seen now clients who have met, who have not, uh, who they have allowed their auditing deadlines to pass. And... And again, often what happens is now from the accounting standpoint, you have people who they are they are competent in terms of understanding the processing of the uh, accounting, you know, the process that's involved, but they're not using the right technology to speed up the process. So uh, that's that's something I'm dealing with now with the client. What's the impact on donors if an organization loses their tax-exempt status, if they're trying to submit donations for tax exemptions on their own forms, do those get rolled back? Do those Does that flag you in any way? No. Well, from, from the donors, the donors normally, uh, the donors won't give the money. The, the organization can take the money, but it's, it's now taxable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we know that side. What I have seen is the donors say, you know, we're not going to give you money until you fix this problem, or the donors might seek another remedy, another agency that can service their cause. Yeah. So the, the biggest impact is basically your donors find out you've lost the status and we, they're not going to donate anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and as we talked about now, the risk is it affects your reputation. Yeah. 
So, yeah. So that's, this is an area that you work with a number of nonprofit organizations. Uh, Offsite Consulting uh, provides financial consulting programs for small business owners and nonprofit leaders. Darnell and his team manage vendors, reconcile bank accounts, and handle tax filings while helping clients focus on long-term revenue growth and tax minimization. You can find out more by visiting Darnell and his team on the web at Offsite, A-U-P-H-S-I-T-E dot com. So we talked about compliance risk, and that's one of five areas that former Wall Street Journal reporter Andrew Blackman thinks that business owners have to keep in mind while managing their companies. So compliance risk is mm-hmm. one. I'll run through the other four, and then mm-hmm. we'll come back to a couple of questions I have okay. on it. So compliance risk. Number two, strategic risk. Okay. Operational risk is number three financial risk, and reputational risk. Mm-hmm. And some of these are more clear-cut than yeah. others, but let's talk a little bit about strategic risk. Yeah, um, Blackman talks about what happened to Kodak, yeah. company a f- only a few years ago had their name on the most prestigious theater in Los Angeles, right? I was Where there when they took it down. You were Sorry. there when <laughs> Oh, my bad. What, Sorry. We, was, was, a couple so, years back. Was that uh, for a work-related? No, 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 I was visiting. You just happened to be there and said, ooh, yeah. that's, that's sad. My bad. Uh, it's now what? The Dolby Theater, right? Mm-hmm. Dolby Sound. Yeah. Still in business. Still in business. Film, not so much. <laughs> and and that was the, you know, so Blackman calls that out as, as a lack of looking at the strategic risk. Because yeah. if you're Kodak... We, we've also talked um, before the show about companies like Fuji, mm-hmm. um, film, right? Who uses film anymore now that so many things are digital? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen Interstellar, the movie from Christopher Nolan? Uh, they go to space. Uh, no, oh. not yet. I guess not. No. <laughs> not I need to go see it. I'm like, huh? I'm yeah. an awful pop culture blogger right now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the movie Interstellar, Christopher Nolan did all the Batman movies recently. Okay. And he is one of Hollywood's leading proponents for the film, the celluloid experience. Okay. But okay. Apart, apart from him, you know, because it's, it's one thing when you are a filmmaker that can make movies that gross a billion dollars, mm-hmm. they'll let you use whatever you want, want right? exactly. so he can get yeah. film um dave grohl from foo fighters uh, has been doing the show sonic highways on hbo mm-hmm. and he pretty famously bought up a large quantity of large analog tape mm-hmm. in the format that he likes to record on because yeah. they don't really make it anymore That's right. right? That's right so with kodak the, the, the strategic risk was something's going to come in and replace film. Yeah. And at the time, folks at Kodak looked at digital technology and said, well, no one's ever going to replace film. You know, that might be good for video, but no one's going to replace <laughs> film. And then you've got companies like Red that come out with a 4K camera that, ooh, that actually looks a lot like film. Yeah. And, and even the industrial uses for it have gone away. And then Kodak just disappears as a company, which 10 years ago would be unthinkable. You would not be able to tell me 10 years ago that Kodak would fail, yeah. right? So what do companies need to do when they're thinking about strategic risk? So this is a family program, so I'm not can't say get your head out. So, um, you know, is it because as you were talk as as you were talking, I was thinking about accounting firms the same way. 
uh, we get fixed to what we believe we know, what we're, what we're comfortable with, what has been driving the market, but not, uh, you know, not really understanding someone is coming along. So, you know, intuit with, uh, you know, QuickBooks Online, you know, if you had, you know, what, 30 years ago having it was it was unheard of to think that, you know, I'll be doing I can do my accountants, you know, my, my accounting at home. You know, you had ledgers and all these books spread on the table and you're moving, you know, for those of us who remember how you had to do it back in the day. But now. So what what you know, when we talk about strategic risk, often the, the, the business owners, the stakeholders are unaware of the real threat of how the market's changing. Uh, is it, you know, we were talking earlier about Palm, if that's, mm-hmm. is that the name, Palm. And from Palm to iPod, or remember the Sony little drop diskettes, remember oh, the yeah, little, uh-huh. yeah, you put in, now to you got your iPhone or your Android and you have all the, and you have your contact book and a map. Well, here's here's something that's a little close to home. So you do a lot of work with organizations setting up point of sale systems, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So think about what the meetings must be like at places like National Cash Register and CR when Square comes to town yeah. or Shopkeep comes to town. Um, because all of a sudden, now instead of this is the ambulance coming to get yeah, the yeah. people from NCR. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about it now. Yeah. The 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 danger here is that you are a company that specializes in expensive, highly durable point of sale systems that cost tens of thousands of dollars. Yep. Right? That's right. And now if I want to open up a snack bar mm-hmm. at my charter school. I can get an iPad. I can get a used iPad. I don't mm-hmm. even have to get a nice new yeah. one. I can get one from eBay for a hundred bucks. That's it. That's or all an, you need. Or an Android tablet. That's it. Right. And it'll run software that does the same exact thing. And you're in business. And you're in business. Yeah. For one one hundredth the cost. In America. Right. <laughs> so yeah. so that's strategic risk. Yeah. Yeah. And and the. It's on you as an entrepreneur to take that time. We've talked before about always educating yourself, always iterating, but making sure that you're looking out to think about what would make my business obsolete in a year, right? Uh, One of the things that Blackman mentions in the article and a way to think about it is you can actually... Uh, think uh, and and I'll reference another great piece. We'll put it in the show notes from uh, some folks at Deloitte. Uh, one of the strategic leaders, Owen Ryan, CEO of Deloitte Risk Advisory Services, talked to the Wall Street Journal about how companies can embrace risk and actually create value while managing risk. And and he framed it up, I thought, really well. The idea that you can actually look at your strategic risk identify places where there are new business models or new businesses that you can get into. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to get into that business before somebody else does. So so you're putting yourself out of business, which Mm -hmm. is just what we would call a pivot Mm -hmm. instead of the Kodak situation, which is someone else just came and shut you down. Yeah. And it wasn't even with Kodak. It wasn't even one someone. It was an entire wave of innovation that just eliminated the need for celluloid film. Mm -hmm. That's right. So what are the things when you talk to clients, um, 
are there indicators, are there things that show up on balance sheets that indicate where they should be looking, where, you know, one piece of business is going up or another piece of business is going down? How do we read the tea leaves? You know, because uh, 85% of my clients, 85%, pretty much all of them, are charter schools. They are in the business of education, which I love to tell them, building human capital. So you're building human capital. So it it is interesting because I'm thinking about when iPads were launched and we are now seeing a shift in education. And that's not something that we would say would show up on the balance sheet, show up on the income statements. That's a conversation that I would have with a client and say, and actually I did have this conversation with the client, uh, World Communications, you know, great client of mine. They're all great. Um, and we saw the shift, you know, the conversation was what, you know, are there grants out there that we can use? What type of programs, legislation is coming down? And so with regards to that, that that was not prevalent by looking at their financial statement. It was more of me observing the, legis- the legislation coming down, uh, uh, looking at this, everyone coming with the pitchforks against traditional uh, education or, you know, the brick and mortar schools and people wanting something different. When I think of, when I look at my, it's interesting because I said, when I look at my numbers, when I look at my financial statements, I always try to look at what the market's telling me in technology. Right now, technology is the driving force of business. Uh, you can adapt something uh, and, 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 and if you are in the market first, you disrupt and it changes. Uh, so for me, it was, wow, I can make some money from installing in, in, in charter schools, point of sale systems. Who would have known accounting firms going to say, hey, how is your, what do you think about putting a point of sale system in here? And we, and, 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 and not only am I doing the installation the setup. Then we come follow up right behind and say, oh, we'll manage this for you. So a lot of times for me, I'm reading technology. Now, when I am engaging my clients, uh, I had a conversation with a client and often it's having them to understand what is a real strategy. Real strategy is not fanciful names. <laughs> we, you know where I'm, I'm getting to. That's not real strategy. Real strategy is you actually building a model that has allowed you to address the uh, what I you know Michael Porter's competitive forces, and and it being dynamic enough to adjust and be able to adjust to the risk of those those forces that exist. Uh, when I'm talking to my clients now, and I say uh, because a lot of the conversation is what's going to make your school relevant. When, and I think what the discussion now in Philadelphia is 40 more charter schools, mm-hmm. again, you know, 10. What, what's going to make your school relevant? And we're not just talking about me, meeting, and, you know, uh, AYP, annual uh, yearly progress reports, according to the feds and state. How, you know, how can we uh, engage in different uh, operating procedures? And and not this is just not operational, but uh, uh, teaching styles that entice the children, have them want to come back. That's awesome, you know, 
because it's interesting, and, and I always go back to accountants don't, you know, many of us don't think past this, um, uh, the reporting side. So oftentimes, I'm, I'm looking at, for me, as we talked about earlier, me reading other things or watching the news mm-hmm. <laughs> and saying, oh, okay, here's what's coming down. What's the conversation I need to have with my client? Well, I think you elevate the discourse from just the reporting to the analysis piece. Mm-hmm. So here's the report, but what does it mean? Yes. And I think charter schools are a great example of strategic risk. If you are an educator in a traditional school district and the entire charter school movement evolved out of that perception that there, there needed to be some An alternative, alternative mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. existing public and private yeah. setup. Yeah. So this third way emerged. But now you see even a fracturing within the charter school movement about charter schools that operate as cyber charters versus mm-hmm. all hands-on charters yeah. to, you know, I mean, we're starting to see so many different kinds of niche charter school experiences mm-hmm. and the entire area is still so new and nascent. We're still learning what works and what doesn't yes. work for each of those experiences. Yes. Yes. And, and so the strategic risk, if you are a school administrator mm-hmm. is, are you going to be out innovated by what is essentially a startup, a startup school? And there, and and, but here's the thing I'm learning is, they're program people. So you and I know that, you know. So when I say program, I'm referring to people say, you know, we're here to deliver a service. They, you know, in the nonprofit community, they are not trained to think. You know, we're going to, we, we're going to take these guys out, make some money. We're going to, you know, I mean, picture, you know, I'm, and I'm just using wherever East or West is. So it doesn't matter what, you know, what community I'm talking to, you know, school on the East side talking about we're going to annihilate them and we're going to take all their students and we're going to, you know, we're going to control the market. They're like, what the, but this is how, when we talk about uh, uh, strategy and risk, this is, in fact, how you have to think. I attended a, uh, a school, was the opening for when I wanted to move to an area, Haddonfield, New Jersey. And it was 8.15 in the morning. Every child had their face in a book, Joe. No, no, this is no doubt. I was like, is this real? <laughs> but, you went to Stepford, I think. <laughs> yeah, but what I also saw... This is a part of their strategy of these are the children we're homing to run stuff. Mm-hmm. It wasn't bad, but it was it was interesting. And so, you know, when, I, when I'm engaging my clients, oftentimes, first, I have to fix and handle their immediate problem. After that's fixed, handle, we have a rapport, we have established trust. Then I can engage them to, you know, how, you know, someone can come in and take your clients Take your students. What are you doing to uh, to to enhance, to engage them, your your students, and have them say, "We want to stay here," you know. But oftentimes, we have I have to build, uh, give them some level of knowledge and education, take them through you know a core, a quick crash course, yeah, so they can understand yeah. how to how to go from just understanding of the operations, mm-hmm. and and that ties into the idea of operational risk, which is 
fairly straightforward, like a lack of oversight. Mm-hmm. Oh, we we didn't know we'd end up with 2,000 students. We only budgeted for 1,500s. Yeah. Now 500 of them don't have iPads. Yeah, yeah. And we're in trouble with the state. And, and, and that can be adjusted. <laughs> See, but that now, when we're talking about at operational risk, when we're talking about strategy, we're also talking about how to have scenario plans. So... If there's a shift in the component that affects our 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 and what we deliver, we immediately we have maybe a couple plans to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And and I, I guess the other good way to think about it is strategic risk, primarily external. So your reaction to external Market. affairs, external right. events, mm-hmm. operational, something happened in your house. That's right. That you That's have right. To fix, good, good way. That's right? excellent way. And then financial risk, uh, a lot of that really just comes down to how you manage cash flow. Are you vulnerable to any outside investments or markets? So if you are involved in any kind of commodity, for instance, mm-hmm. we saw that in December with oil prices. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the sob story on CNBC of the oil baron whose net worth went from $10 billion to $7 billion in a day. <laughs> I think if you still have anything. I feel anything sorry for the guy. <laughs> with, That's a couple billion. I, I guess if you have three less of anything than you did, it's <laughs> yeah. still a little sad. But I don't know. If you have a billion dollars. And uh, how's it locked up? You're going to be fine, <laughs> I think, right? But but the, but the financial yeah. but the financial risk is real in that you know certainly not not just to make light of it because mm-hmm. a lot of that ends up being you know people's salaries and pensions yeah. and things. But that's the thing where you can go into a market that's inherently risky and volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, even things like if you do business with folks overseas, mm-hmm. that's uh, right. You know, so an example is let's say that you're a designer you take on a client that's in France. Mm-hmm, and at mm-hmm. the beginning of the engagement, you say, well, I'm going to do this deal for $10,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they say, no, well, let's let's do it in euros, make it easier for us. And you say, <laughs> fine, $10,000 today is worth 9,000 euros. Yeah, or yeah, whatever, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the the value of the euro crashes. Yeah. And you've delivered, you know, mm-hmm. $10,000 worth of products and services, yeah. but you're only going to get $5,000 yeah. back because of that time gap, that's right? right? That's right. So so that's the kind of financial risk mm-hmm. that folks take on. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the piece that I end up working on a lot in my practice is reputational risk. Yeah. So this is where... Rounding back up to the story that we talked about at the top, mm-hmm. um, you're running this nice little Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. You think everything's going fine. You've got good Yelp reviews. And all of a sudden, there's a class action lawsuit <laughs> because you charged a dude $4 Extra. too much, yeah. right? So yeah. so that's the kind of thing that you have to think about. What 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 are all those elements that impact how I can serve my customers, how I deliver on that mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, um, the the big piece is as an entrepreneur or as a nonprofit leader, mm-hmm. how, how do we sleep at night? How do we actually keep all of those ideas of risk, all five areas from becoming overwhelming? Assessments, Quarterly assessments. Um, you know, I, I don't want to sound like the education people because they will assess everything. So, yes, and, and and I meant it like that. They will assess everything, the light bug of how it enters your house. So when I when I say assess assessments, 
uh, and, and when we're talking about addressing these threats, it's interesting because my brain's just thinking how to make more money right now. <laughs> but point out, you know, the threats that exist, the possible threats, strategic, operational, financial, and, you know, draft together, you know, an assessment tool that can gauge uh, the strength and weaknesses and, and, and deliver the report. I'm actually, I'm, I'm performing that right now for an, uh, a client. And before I take the client on, I want to understand, you know, how does your accounting really work? Your accounting department really work? And they gave me, now, and, and this is no knock to y'all, they gave me a, a one page. And I was like, okay, okay. But that's fine because this is not the business they're into. Yeah, and at least yeah. they had that. Yeah, at least they had that. And I, and I was said, thank you. And I said, okay. So I said, you know what? Let me come in. <laughs> Let me gauge this myself. And the conversation, you know, uh, and, and the young lady was a little nervous because she saw the conversations I was asking was a little more prod, pro, you know, probing than what she is used to. But you have to you, you have to take the time and meet with your department heads and say, you know, um, I heard Darnell, I heard Joe say this, or I read this and say, you know what? You know, they were talking about assessments and, you know, we would like to explore these items or you can call me or call Joe. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah. with that, just a quick reminder that we've got show notes, additional materials at offsite.com slash podcast and offsite consulting presents the offsite podcast, providing financial consulting programs for small business owners and nonprofit leaders. Darnell and his team manage vendors, reconcile bank accounts and handle tax filings while helping clients focus on long-term revenue growth and tax minimization. Find Darnell and the team on the web at offsite, A-U-P-H-S-I-T-E dot com. Until next week, I'm Joe Taylor Jr. for Darnell Suleiman. Have Thanks, a great Joe. week. Thank you. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions stated represent those of the speakers and not those of their employers, the producers, 2820 Press, or any program sponsors. This podcast does not constitute legal, business, or financial advice, nor should you take any action on anything you hear during this podcast without consulting a competent advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or blog. This has been a 2820 Radio Production.